Church will be together this morning in the book of Jonah. You can turn with me there. If you have any kids that are up through fifth grade and would like them to go to some age-specific teaching, that's offered now. You can head out to the patio and uh, there'll be somebody there who can help you know where to go. If uh, you are new to Christianity, uh, Christians are people who part of what we believe is that God has spoken and that speaking has been recorded in a book. That book's called the Bible, and through it, God continues to speak. So each Sunday as we gather together, we open it up and prayerfully ask that God would help us to understand. We've been working through a little book in the Bible called Jonah. If uh, you don't have a Bible underneath the seat in front of you, there's a blue one that looks like this, and we'll be on page 452 in those Bibles, uh, page 452. In terms of a quick quick recap of where we've been, in Jonah chapter 1, we learned that not even a disobedient prophet can stop God's mercy. God's mercy came to the sailors on the boat even while Jonah was running away. And then in Jonah chapter 2, we learned that all praise belongs to God because God rescues repentant people from certain judgment. Only when Jonah finally hit rock bottom did he then turn to God in prayer. Not so often how life works. We're only really ready to submit ourselves to the Lord when we recognize how desperately we need Him. A sincere, repentant cry to God will always be met with mercy from God. That's Jonah chapter 2, and I hope you'll keep that marked in your Bibles because, brothers and sisters, there'll be many days ahead in which we need that passage, and we'll need it to encourage each other in the difficult days in life that God's worthy of praise, even when His rescue for us comes in forms we wouldn't expect. Now, this morning, as we turn to Jonah chapter 3, we'll be considering it in kind of three waves, if you will. Jonah chapter 3, verses 1 to 4 contain a second chance. So we'll talk about that together. Jonah 5 through 9 describes a fitting response. And then finally in verse 10, we'll consider the display of God's mercy. Val is going to come read for us from Jonah chapter 3, 1 through 4, as we consider first a second chance. And Val is a student, and Val got hit by a car a few days ago. (laughs) So you're going to pray for Val, right? I'm good, I promise. (laughs) Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, And call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh, according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey. And he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Thank you. A second chance. After... The fish upchucked Jonah. He quickly 
experienced another opportunity to obey God. Now, Jonah had lots of reasons to say no again. In fact, none of them had changed. The Assyrians weren't any less evil. The personal risk to Jonah wasn't any less great. And the possibility that they might actually respond remained. Jonah had lots of reasons not to go. But church, recipients of God's grace know that we must go and tell others of our God of grace. Drawing on the deep reservoir of his own personal experience with the mercy of God, Jonah now became a tributary of that same mercy for others. He was sent to Nineveh to do what we might call evangelism. Now, uh, evangelism sometimes gets a bad rap. I hope they're not coming for one of us. <laughs> it's more popular today in some circles to think of our task as Christians in the world is something like preach the gospel and, if necessary, use words. I want to encourage you, if you ever hear that, to stick your fingers in your ears and happily shout, Hogwash! Because that's just not true. Without speaking God's word, without disclosing who God is, without saying who we are apart, apart from Him, without humbly and boldly declaring what God has accomplished in Jesus Christ, without inviting people to turn from sin and turn to Him, there is no evangelism actually happening. That's what evangelism is. It's joyfully announcing good news. Now, it's certainly true, of course, that that announcement must be accompanied by Christians living lives of kindness, of generosity, of holiness, filled with tangible acts of love for others. But if God's Word is not spoken, then brothers and sisters, we have failed in our essential duty and responsibility of making disciples. Now picture with me, if you would, Jonah there standing on the shore. Maybe he's scraping off all the bits of fish guts covering him from head to toe. And in that moment, the word of the Lord comes to him again. You got a second chance. Now, I'd love for you to get this burned in your minds, and this will do it. Jonah got take two. Right? You see it? Take two. And I hope this will stick, so I'm going to set it right here. But don't think about the movies you like. Let me think about take two. Jonah got another chance. God, in essence, said to Jonah, Jonah, go announce to Nineveh a dire warning and invite them to respond to me. It's the same message he got in chapter 1, but here, when he got another chance, Jonah went. Beloved, aren't you thankful for second chances? 
God has given them to you over and over and over and over and over again. And he will keep doing so. He is the God of second chances. Now, if we look in verse 3, you'll notice that Jonah heads east. He arrives at the city of Nineveh, and he begins to speak God's word, warning the Assyrians. You'll see that message summarized in verse 4. Yet 40 days, Nineveh shall be overthrown. Now, that most certainly is not all that Jonah said. But it is the essence of the announcement that God sent him to proclaim. We know from across the landscape of the Bible that every warning like this, every announcement that judgment is ahead, is meant by God to serve as an invitation. An invitation to acknowledge God. To turn from our failings. To ask Him for forgiveness. This dynamic that a warning, a rebuke, also serves as an invitation is implicit in Jonah chapter 3, but it's explicit in many, many, many other passages of Scripture. Think, for example, about Jeremiah chapter 18. It's here on the screen if you want to follow it. God says, If at any time I declare concerning a nation or a kingdom that I will pluck up and break down and destroy it, and if that nation concerning which I have spoken turns from its evil, I will relent of the disaster I intended to do. Friends, that's true of every single individual. When God says earthly consequences lie ahead for the unrepentant, and even more so when God says eternal judgment is certain for all who remain in stubborn unbelief, God's purpose in doing so is to announce and invite us to cast ourselves on His mercy. That is the purpose of the rebuke. God, you see, takes no pleasure, no pleasure or pleasure in the death of the wicked. He longs that all should come to repentance. He desires that all would be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. Rebukes are invitations. Brothers and sisters, would you think back for a moment? to just some of the examples of the patience and mercy of God that you have experienced. All the times there's been a take two, and three, and four, and five. God is good. God is merciful. If you're listening to this sermon, considering Jonah chapter 3, and you've never cast yourself on the mercy of God, by placing your trust in Jesus Christ. And the invitation today to you, of course, is to hear God's warning. God thus far has been patient with you, but this patience will not last forever. It is a terrible thing to carry the weight of your rebellion against Him today. It will be far worse to carry it into eternity an eternity that lasts forever. 
While you may not yet have recognized many of the warning signs, these are the undeniable and severe consequences unless you respond. But don't misunderstand me, unbeliever. We Christians don't think in some way or in any way we are better than you. We don't believe our behavior has somehow warranted this mercy from God. We don't think our nature or our disposition is in any way superior to yours. In one sense, you can say the only difference between a Christian and a non-Christian, a believer and an unbeliever, is that we Christians have come to terms with our failures. And we've confessed them to God and asked for His mercy. And you, unbeliever, haven't. In one sense, that's the only difference. You have stuck your head in the sand. And we have come to see who God is. And He has pulled us out. May He do so for you today. Jonah chapter 3 will tell us that there is proof that there is a way out. There's a way to forgiveness and freedom. There's a way that wrath would be averted for mercy. We find it in the fitting response of the Ninevites. That's verses 5 through 9. Would you follow along with me? The people of Nineveh believed... God, wow, they called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth and sat in ashes. The image here is from the very heights of power to the lowest of humility. Verse 7, he issued a proclamation and published throughout Nineveh, by the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth. Let them call out mightily to God. Then everyone turned from his evil way and from the violence that's in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent from His anger, fierce anger, so that we may not perish. Friends, as a church that's committed to working our way through the Bible, some text we come to, the, the sermon, of course, is uplifting and light and freeing and happy. And every, every text we get to ought to feel like that. But the ones that describe something like this ought to feel different. Here in this city of Nineveh, overrun with violence of every kind, famous even today for their wickedness, the city where God's name had not been praised and His word had not been heard, there was a widespread turning to God. Church on Mill, that ought to give us great hope for our city. 
It ought to fill us with encouragement. Certainly, if the Lord is able and willing to forgive Nineveh, He is able to do something remarkable here too, should He so desire. This, of course, is why God has sovereignly placed a church at 13th and Mill Avenue in downtown Tempe. This is why we're here. By gathering together every Sunday morning, we proclaim God's Word in song, in prayer, in humbly sitting quietly and listening to Him in His Word as it's preached, in our conversations with each other. And in these acts, we're not only growing ourselves, but we're declaring to our city, God is good. Come hear Him. And then as we scatter throughout the week, we go with God's Spirit to share God's Word. Because we believe the masses still need to hear from God. And we believe among those masses are some who God will have for Himself. Church, may we not grow weary in our day-to-day proclamation of the gospel. May we not become worn out in our zealousness for good deeds that adorn this gospel. Who knows? Maybe God will save many in Tempe. He's done it with us. Now, among verses 5 to 9, I think there's two words that really stand out. That the way the story is told are designed to show us what's typical of a fitting response to God. So, when God's judgment and a warning and invitation is heard, how do people respond? What's the right response? Well, in verse 5, you'll notice the word believe. If you're somebody that writes in your Bible, you might circle it. And then in verses 8, 9, and 10, you'll see the word turn. Believe and turn. So when an understanding of the weight of sin and the certainty of God's judgment fall on people who don't know God, what should they do? When the light of Christ breaks through the darkness of life without Him, how does one find mercy? Believe and turn. Like two sides of a coin, heads and tails, the two always go together. Believe and turn. So let's take a few minutes together to consider each of those. First, the word believe. Now, a very natural, understandable question that we might have is, what exactly did the Assyrians believe? After all, we only have a sentence of the sermon that Jonah gave. Do you feel in any way jealous that that preacher was more succinct than me? (laughs) In the case of the Assyrians, belief must have included an understanding of something of God's character and His rightful claim to be in charge as their creator. It had to have included that. And they must have had some sense about how dreadful the coming judgment would be And that they deserved it. Because so many of them responded in faith. That's what belief does. Belief 
is exercising trust in God. Now, frankly, I don't think we can know what else the Assyrians knew. But it must have included those things. Remember, this is relatively early in the story of God's redemptive plan. Today, in 2020, on this side of the cross, with a complete Bible, we now have the whole story. We are told explicitly what exactly we need to believe in order to be saved. There ought to be never any question about it at all. It can be captured in one word. Gospel. The gospel is what we believe. Romans chapter 1 says, the gospel is the good news of the power of God for salvation. That gospel in response is fleshed out further in Romans 10. Look at it here on the screen with me. It says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. Why? For the Scriptures say, everyone who believes in Him will never be put to shame. For there's no distinction between Jew and Greek. Now to get the sense of that among us, between white and black, Asian and Indian, rich and poor, educated and uneducated, old and young, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Why? For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing His riches on all who call on Him. Everyone who calls on the Lord will be saved. That's today what we know one must believe. Belief is expressing itself in Romans 10 by calling on the name of the Lord. It's coming to terms with The fact that Jesus is Lord, that He's God, that He's in charge, that He lived the life we were supposed to live and died the death we deserved to die and rose again and is ruling and reigning today. That, friends, is the story of the Scriptures from Genesis to Revelation. It is the story all things are racing forward to. It is the Gospel, the good news. That's The heads of the coin. Believe. And friend, if you've never believed, that's the invitation to you today. Believe. But if you turn the coin over, there's another side. That's captured in Jonah chapter 3, verses 8, 9, and 10. Now, can you remember back for a moment to when you were a child? Probably one of your parents or your guardian, whoever raised you, had to tell you something over and over and over. Why? Because you weren't listening. Maybe that's why turn is here so many times. It's easy not to listen. To turn is to repent. It's to recognize, God, I can now see that I've been running 
this way, trying to get away from you. And now, because I understand, Lord, I want to turn and go this way. I want to follow you. I turn from sin and turn to you. That's repentance. Now, I cannot believe I'm about to do this, but I think repentance can be captured well in a country song. Jesus, take the wheel. God, I've been trying to steer my own life. I've been directing it towards the destination I want it to go. Whether through all the worldly success I could ever attain and I've already gotten it and I've found that destination sucks. Or whether through all the failure I could imagine and I've done it and that's no good either. God, I've been directing my life that isn't mine. It's yours. And now, would you take the wheel? That's repentance. If you ever tell somebody, I referenced a country song, I may not respond in truth. (laughs) Now, Jonah chapter 3 then gives us the outward evidences of repentance. You see, this inward change of God, I've been going that way, and now I'm going to go that way, is something immaterial. It's a spiritual change. But it ought to be, and it in fact must be, attended to by visible external changes in your way of life. These evidences of repentance in Jonah chapter 3 probably strike many of us as pretty weird. Wearing sackcloth. What even is that? City-wide fasting. Sitting in a pile of ashes. These are foreign to most of us, but they were culturally relevant outward evidences of repentance that demonstrate an inward change of heart. They show a mourning and a grieving for sin and a humble asking God to avert the judgment deserved and to instead give mercy. Friend, if you claim to already have placed belief in Christ. And yet, when you honestly assess the last days and weeks and months, maybe even years, if there is no visible external evidence, crumbs of an inward repentance, You may need to reconsider, have I ever actually believed and repented? Biblical belief and genuine repentance go together. They're fraternal twins. Jesus himself said in Mark chapter 1, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe. 
in the gospel. Now, much more could be said here, of course, but for today we need to move on. That raises questions we sure would love to talk more together about those issues. But for now, would you consider these two questions? How does God respond to this kind of brokenheartedness? When people believe and when they repent, what does God do? Well, Jonah chapter 3 is one of the many places in the Scriptures that give us a definitive answer. Like, there's no ambiguity here. God's reaction in Jonah chapter 3 typifies what He always does when one repents and believes. Look at verse 10. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that He had said He would do to them, and He did not do it. Now, you sang hallelujah over and over and over before. This would be a good time to shout it out. This stands among the most extravagant displays of God's mercy in all the pages of the Bible. And church, if we look back down the corridor of time, you'll find the forgiveness of the Assyrians in Nineveh to be a magnificent bright spot. And from that bright spot emanate millions more. The light of Christ has shone throughout every generation in the rescuing of sinners. And this light of mercy and grace will one day chase away the darkness among every tribe, tongue, and nation. That is what God is up to in this world. That is what He's doing through you. When the word is proclaimed and sinners respond in faith and repentance, God exchanges wrath for mercy. Guaranteed. That is what He does. Friend, if you've never received God's mercy in Christ and you believe what we've said today, why not now? Turn from sin and turn to Him. Place your confidence not in yourself but in Christ. Your Creator has been justly offended by your sin, but Jesus Christ can receive all the wrath you deserve and give you all the mercy you don't. This is the scandal of the gospel. And it is true. If you agree with the facts of God's word, then trust Him today. Maybe there's some, though, who have remaining questions. And I don't mean remaining questions about tangential things, but like at the core... There's still things you don't get. And friend, I want to encourage you when we finish in 10, 12 minutes, to ask somebody sitting near you, would you tell me more about Jesus? There's a room full of people here who would be delighted to share with you more about what they've experienced and known to be true about God. And we will walk with you as long as you'll let us.
God is a merciful God. Your certain disaster can be traded for deliverance. If you would but repent and believe. Now Jonah chapter 3, it's, it's, its application seems mainly to be that. To invite non-Christians to trust in Jesus Christ. In light of the whole sweeping story of the Bible, that's the message of application so needed. But what about the rest of us? There are many in this room who are already followers of Jesus Christ. Is there any appropriate response for us from these words? Yes. I made a list of just a few things. Would you consider these Christian? Brothers and sisters, would you remember? Would you even feel something of what you deserved compared with what you've now received? What a gift salvation is. What joy is ours in Christ? And therefore, brothers and sisters, we of course need to be people who keep repenting. Now, not the repentance of the first initial time of turning away from a life apart from God and turning to Him. That only happens once. But there is a Christian daily repentance. Because we can be genuine followers of Jesus going this way and yet find ourselves turned back and acting like we're still going that way. Right? 1 John 1.9 is written for us, believers. It says if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Friends, repentance isn't a one-time event at the moment of conversion. It's an ongoing lifestyle. As we realize both internal thoughts that we chew on and ponder and enjoy that are apart from Christ and external behaviors that are the same. Brother and sister, when was the last time there was a brokenness over sin? And in that brokenness, may we keep on believing. May our knowledge of Jesus Christ and who He is and what He's done for us and all that the Father loves for us to know about Him through His Spirit, may these things captivate our minds. May they move our wills. May they fill our tongues as we speak with each other. May we help each other believe more and more and more. And of course, Jonah chapter 3 would be saying to us by way of application as Christians that if God can save the Assyrians, then God can save the people that we interact with 
not by way of our slick, fancy, know-it-all presentation, but by us simply saying what God says. Friend, you will be sent this week. You'll be sent to your neighborhood, to your dorm, to your apartment, to your school, to your work. One or two of us will be sent to the gym. We'll be sent to restaurants. We'll be sent to the grocery store. And friend, everywhere you go, you are a sent one as a follower of Jesus with a message to share. I wonder, though, if there's anybody here today who God may be filling with direction in such a way that beyond those ordinary sentnesses of everyday life, he will be sending somewhere else. A sentness to plant a church where there isn't one, to help a church where it is a weak one. Whether that's on the other side of Tempe or the other side of the world, There are more people in more places who still need Jonas. Maybe God would send one of us. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would now use your word to do what only you can do. Pray that you would open our eyes to see, to believe, to feel, to embrace, to repent. We pray that the Christians in the room would embrace this sentness even as we're turning from sin and turning to you and asking you to strengthen our belief. And we pray, Lord, for remaining questions people have in the room who are not yet believers. God, would you grant them courage to say to others, I'm interested, but I still have some struggle with some of this. Can you help me? God, we thank you that in your grace and mercy, what we deserve in Christ we don't get. And what we don't deserve is all of ours. We praise you for mercy. In Jesus' name.